0: Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Are you ready for what God has for you today? Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, I know one thing for sure. God wants to do something new in you. There is nothing more exciting than knowing that God is at work, even if we can't see what he's doing and have to wait a while to find out. He is always good so our lives are safe and secure in his hands, no matter what that new thing is. I'm Chris Voigt, and I have the immense privilege of leading the team here at Dayspring. It certainly keeps me on my toes because that team expends endless energy helping people grow. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that you can come as you. We're just like you, regular people on a journey discovering what God has for us each day, and each day saying yes to becoming like Jesus, one step at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to figure out what your yes is today, and tomorrow, and the next day. Slowly becoming like Jesus. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey, even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on. This is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers, so welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Are any of these words familiar to anyone besides me? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. If we didn't live in an internet age where with my luck I'd become an internet meme mocking Christians accidentally bringing shame to the church, I would have sung them complete with emotions. Yes, sir. Uh, I I don't know if you know this song, uh, if if it's even being still sung in Sunday school, but if you grew up in church in the the 70s and 80s, you probably have them seared into your memory as well. But even though I sang them thousands of times through the years, it wasn't until my college years that I began to understand that Christianity isn't a playground, but a battleground. I have author Frank Peretti to thank for opening my eyes. In 1990, he released his fictional work, This Present Darkness. In it, the hero, Marshall Hogan, is is unbeknownst to him, aided by angels as he seeks to save his family. And while the angels might be unknown to him, the veil between this world and the spirit world is pulled back for the reader. In no way am I saying that Frank Peretti Portrayed the spiritual realm and the activities of angels and fallen angels. The way that he did that is actually the way the spiritual realm works. It is a work of fiction after all. And we don't have enough explicit scripture to know for sure. But it was this present darkness that began to change my awareness and understanding of the epic battle we find ourselves in when we come to Christ. A battle that the Apostle Paul gives us insight into today as we close out our series, Ephesians, Becoming Who You Are. As we've discovered over the past seven weeks, the moment we surrender our lives to Christ, some pretty major changes occur. Things that were not true just moments before become true in the twinkling of an eye. It just takes us a while to figure it all out. When we, we first learned that we have been chosen by God, the churchy word for that is election. But that's what it means. We have been chosen by God. And we have chosen God. And Jesus, who already reigns as Lord, is seated at the right hand of God above the cosmic forces of evil. And in our election, we have been raised up with him and are seated with him in the heavenlies. All of that gives us a new citizenship. We are now citizens of the kingdom of God. But even more than that, we have been adopted into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our heart as the seal of our adoption. We, we are in union with Christ and we are called to live as one, as the body of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit, uh, as the body of Christ, we have the privilege of declaring uh, or demonstrating to the powers and principalities of the heavenly realm, both good and evil, the eternal plan of God. A great mystery that is unfolding through the church on a cosmic stage that will eventually bring all into submission to God. No one saw it coming. Even the wiliest of all liars, Satan himself, who would have done everything in his power to keep Jesus alive, had he known. Though the battle was won when Jesus shed his blood for us and then conquered death, the enemy of our souls still wages war against us and is free to assault us over and over again, which means we need to learn how to live out of our new identity in our day-to-day lives, that we might walk in the power of Christ. The victory is already ours because the victory is already His. Warren Wearsby writes, as believers... We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. The Spirit of God enables us by faith to appropriate Christ's victory for ourselves. We are already victors. Just as we are already citizens of heaven, just as we are already children of God living with the same power that conquered death dwelling in us, we are just as we are already righteous and are already all of the other things that we've learned so far, we just need to learn to live out of this victorious identity, which we do by learning to imitate Christ. Now, as we get to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, uh, while this might seem like a completely new thought, even unrelated to the rest of Ephesians, in truth, Paul is bringing it all together. This is what he has been aiming at the whole time. This is the practical application of all that he's been saying in Ephesians to this point. Theologian Clinton Arnold argues that the first chapters in Ephesians are Paul's call to become strong in the Lord for the purpose of engaging the spirit forces of evil. All that to say, this next section of chapter 6 isn't some add-on or irrelevant appendix to Ephesians. This has been Paul's endgame all along. Everything we've learned are building blocks This is the finished work. Let's pick it up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. A final word, or finally, in many translations. Finally is our cue that Paul is bringing everything up to this point in Ephesians together. Finally, be strong. Or older versions say, be strengthened in his mighty power. The idea here is that strength is drawn from an external source. Obviously the Lord. It's his strength, not ours. Uh, This parallels Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16, where he prayed that God would empower you with inner strength through his spirit. It is also roughly the same wording that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 6. There David strengthened himself in the Lord. And Zechariah 10, 12 says, I will make them strong in the Lord. And it is the same uh, terms that Paul used in Ephesians 1 to describe the power behind the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. So be strong in this power of the Lord. This isn't something we do in a moment. Like, I sense the devil's at work, so I'm going to strengthen myself for the fight. We strengthen ourselves As we become who we are, everything we've been discovering during the past weeks, as we become more like Jesus, we become strengthened in his mighty power. That's what makes us strong in the Lord. It's a lifelong process, not a moment. Similarly, it isn't our armor that we put on in verse 11. It is God's armor, which we'll unpack in a few verses. And just like we aren't strengthened in a moment, but by a lifestyle, we don't put this armor on when we sense a battle coming. It becomes our everyday wear. We've talked a lot about clothing during this series. The armor becomes our everyday jeans and t-shirt. So that we'll be able to stand firm against all of the strategies of the devil. No matter how strong we are on our own, we need divine strength to resist the devil. We cannot stand firm on our own. Speaking of the devil, we don't really talk about him much. Our culture has some rather crazy ideas about the devil when compared with reality. The devil goes by many names in scripture. The word devil means accuser. Uh, Revelation 12 tells us that he accuses God's people, that's you and me, he accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Satan means adversary because he is the enemy of God. In Matthew 4, he is called the tempter. John 8 calls him the murderer and the liar. First Peter compares him to a lion Genesis and Revelation, a serpent. And in 2 Corinthians, an angel of light and a little g, God of this age. Contrary to what we see in our popular culture, Satan is not the altar equal of God. Though he is certainly the opposite of God. He is in no way equal. He is a God-created, angelic being who can do nothing apart from God's control or permission. He does not have the same powers as God. He is not all-knowing. He cannot read our minds. He cannot be everywhere at once, nor is he all-powerful. He is also not an eternal being. Those characteristics are true only of God. He is a student of human behavior. He knows what makes you tick More than you know what makes you tick. He spends every moment fighting against the advance of Christ in our lives and around the world. His strategies, as we see here in the New Living Translation, also sometimes translated schemes, is the word methodeia in Greek. It's a word that's only used negatively in the New Testament. It means deception. His entire system of warfare against the people of God is based on deception. He is the father of lies. Author Kent Hughes says, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on the pain and anguish and filth. Paul has already pointed out some of his filthy strategies. In Ephesians chapter 4, he tempts us, he tempts us into speaking falsehood. He wants to make us liars like he is. He tempts us to uncontrolled anger or rage, to steal, to unwholesome talk. He, He camouflages evil and distorts truth, making sin look attractive and desirable and painting God as unfair and capricious, vindictive and untrustworthy. And he has a lot of help. Verse 12. For we are not fighting. If you've got your, your paper Bible, circle that word. If, for, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is the only place in the New Testament where we see this Greek word for fighting or struggle. It means a wrestling and refers to a contest between two people in which one tries to throw the other. One commentary said, When we consider that the loser in a Greek wrestling contest had his eyes gouged out with resulting blindness for the rest of his days, we can form some conception of the Ephesian Greeks' reaction to Paul's illustration. Our struggle against the forces of evil in an unseen world is no less desperate. He isn't coming at you from afar. He, and more likely one of his minions, and not the cute little kind we see aligned with Grew in the Despicable Me movie franchise, they are gunning for you, and the fight is up close and personal. Paul has already referenced these rulers and authorities in general two times in Ephesians, but this is the first time that he has united the devil and the evil one and the rulers and powers all together. But we should not read this as a technical statement of the hierarchy of hell. There isn't enough information here or elsewhere in Scripture to say anything definitively. Paul is just trying to help us understand that there is a massive and complex hierarchy of hell fighting against us. We actually get an interesting picture of this battle in the Old Testament book of Daniel. In chapter 10 of Daniel, three three weeks after a disturbing vision, one of God's messenger angels appears before Daniel. He goes on to tell Daniel that he had been dispatched by God on day one, but had been fighting the spirit prince over Persia, trying to break through to Daniel for 21 days, and that the archangel Michael had had to come to actually help him get through. All of which suggests that there are hierarchies and principalities in the unseen world over nations, and in our case, probably over our states and cities. But in the end, theologians say that it's impossible to tell uh, what, to what degree there are distinctions among the powers of hell. We don't know how the king of chaos organizes his troops, and it really isn't all that important anyway. What we can and should take away from uh, this list are three things. First, our battle is against the devil, but not him Personally. He operates against us through his minions. Most of the time, though we refer to the devil, we we really are grouping them together into one be all end all army of evil. Second, our battle is not against human beings. As evil as we might think some person is, they are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. We waste our time fighting people when we should be fighting the devil. For example, think about how much energy we spend hating on the people we disagree with in politics. Whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or Kate Brown, they are not the enemy. They are image bearers of our king just like we are. Jesus died for them too. We'd be far more effective if we just shut up and prayed that the real enemy would have his plans frustrated in their lives, or even better yet, that the Holy Spirit would break through and lead them to a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus. In 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 31, the king of Syria tells his soldiers, fight neither with the small nor great, save only with the king. The same is true with us. Our battle is with the powers of hell. The third thing that we should take from these verses, uh, we should never forget that Satan and all of the powers of hell have already been defeated. Jesus has already won that victory. That's why Paul doesn't instruct us to win the battle. The battle has been won. We are to stand firm against an enemy who is mad about being defeated and won't surrender easily. Which brings us up to Paul's, to, to God's armor, that, the armor that Paul referred to in verse 11. We're fighting God's battle with God's power, wearing God's armor. And as we've already talked about, this is our everyday jeans and t-shirt, as uncomfortable as it might seem. We don't put this on when we sense a battle. Most of the time, we don't sense a battle, which is why we need the armor. It provides supernatural protection 24-7. It's what enables us to stand firm, to be strong. We are protected by God's power. It is our lifelong pursuit of becoming like Jesus that becomes this armor. It just becomes who we are over time. And believe me, we want the whole armor. Satan will look for any unguarded area in our lives to gain traction over us. And one of the ways we know that that these verses are the target Paul was aiming at all along is that every piece of armor in these verses uh, refers to something Paul has already taught us in Ephesians. He's reinforcing everything else we've learned along the way to help us see how all of those pieces fit into the big picture. Let's continue with verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Now, though this metaphor would have brought to mind a common uniform of the day, Paul probably uh, didn't, probably, Paul probably got these images from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Multiple commentaries note that Isaiah 11.5 mentions that the, the Messiah will be coming with a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. Isaiah 50.17 refers to the Lord donning, a right, donning righteousness like a breastplate and putting a helmet of salvation on his head. And Isaiah fifty two seven describes the beauty of the feet of those who pronounce good news of happiness, salvation, and the kingdom of God. We are literally donning the armor of God. And in that armor, we are to stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. In ancient days, the belt was something uh, more than just something that holds up your pants. Uh, the belt of a Roman soldier's uh, uniform helped hold together the breastplate and the sheath for his weapon. It protected his loins while keeping him free and agile enough to attack or defend. The belt was a symbol of your readiness for battle. Once your most valuable parts, from a man's perspective, were protected and ready to go. In in the grander sense, the belt of truth is the truth as God revealed through his word. And it often includes truth of character or integrity in living according to God's word. It is truth integrated into the life of a victorious Christian. But in light of what Paul has written in Ephesians, it is also the truth of the gospel which Paul refers to in Ephesians one thirteen. The gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and those who walk in the light will live and speak truth, as we've also seen in Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-five and five nine. We resist the devil by not giving him a place or a foothold in Ephesians four twenty-seven, through a truth encounter. And the body armor of God's righteousness or breastplate of righteousness was made of metal plates or chain that covered the body from neck to waist, both front and back. It was an indispensable part of the soldier's protection, as it is for us. The enemy of our souls loves to aim his arrows at our heart, the symbol of our faith. He tries to convince us that Jesus wasn't enough. To bridge the gap between our failures and our promised righteousness. He he comes at us with daggers of doubt. Causing us to question if God's grace is enough. To doubt God's goodness, his sovereignty. He shoots missiles of guilt and shame. But we stand firm in the righteousness of Christ. Who empowers us to live out his righteousness practically in our lives. However imperfect that may be. Now, when it comes to understanding what Paul means here, there are two options. First, he could mean the righteousness of our justification. When we accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sin on the cross, we were justified through Christ. Scholars call that imputed righteousness. Our right standing before God. So it could be our justifying righteousness that protects us, making, uh, making it impossible for his arrows to kill us only hurt us in the short run. Or it could be our sanctifying righteousness, which is the righteousness, or lack of righteousness, of the way we live. It is the righteousness that develops as we increasingly imitate Christ with our whole lives. As is usually the case when scholars get involved, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, Our positional or justified righteousness in Christ assures us of our salvation no matter what the enemy says. But our practical righteousness flows from our positional righteousness as the Holy Spirit does his perfect work in us. They were never meant to be separated. Either, either way though, the practical righteousness of our daily living strengthens us against the attacks of the enemy or makes it, makes it easier, for, harder for him to defeat us. And As we saw with the belt of truth, Paul connects the breastplate of righteousness to the right living he describes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and chapter 5, verse 9. The bottom line is, we don't want to give an inch to Satan in the areas of impurity, lust, greed, or injustice, so live out your new identity in Christ by your righteous living. Okay, verse 15. For shoes... Put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. A Roman soldier's shoes were actually heavy sandals. The soles were made of several layers of thick leather up to three quarters of an inch thick. They were studded with hollow headed hobnails, which would make them something like cleats, giving them maximum footing and traction in any terrain and climate. They were tied halfway up the shin and could be stuffed with wool or fur during cold weather. Our footing against Satan is the peace that Christ has secured with God on our behalf, which we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace within ourselves. But in this verse, we also see a readiness or preparedness to proclaim the gospel. Our shoes of peace are both defensive and offensive. We can not only stand firm against the enemy when he tries to steal our peace, but we can also take ground as we carry the good news of the gospel of peace to a lost and dying world. Verse 16. In addition to all of these hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. The shield of a Roman soldier was actually very interesting. When we picture a shield, we think of a smaller shield, maybe attached to a forearm like we've seen in the movie Gladiator or on Marvel's Captain America. But a Roman soldier's shield was actually about four and a half feet in length and about two and a half feet wide. It was made of wood and covered with thick leather. It was not only big enough to protect one's whole body, but in battle mode could be locked together with others to form a wall in front and a roof overhead. This suggests that Christians are not in the battle alone. We fight the barrage of flaming arrows from the evil one with each other. We protect not only ourselves, but help to provide protection for others as well. The faith described here is not saving faith, but faith in the promises and power of God. Faith is a defensive weapon. Satan shoots fiery arrows at our hearts and minds. Temptation, fear, pride, anger, doubt, discouragement, depression, hopelessness, greed. These are just a few of his fiery arrows. Faith protects us from such attacks. Faith allows us to see our circumstances from God's perspective. Faith activates our trust in God's goodness when things don't seem good. Faith allows us to see the light at the end of dark valleys. Faith allows us to trust God, whatever our circumstances may be, good or bad. And faith allows us to share our faith with other brothers and sisters or borrow theirs from time to time as we stand firm together against the onslaught of our enemy. Two more pieces. Verse 17. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It gets lost in translation. But in the original language, Paul changes verbs as he introduces these next two pieces of armor. Instead of simply just taking something that is already yours and putting it on, in the original language, the idea is to receive, as in you receive a gift from the Lord, something offered from him. Now, obviously, the helmet is designed to protect the head. And in this sense, it might seem a little odd that, that salvation is the next-to-last piece of armor we put on. I mean, shouldn't it be the first? I, I mean, our, our salvation comes before all of this other stuff uh, in the order of things. Without salvation, you, you have no righteousness, positional or practical. You don't earn your salvation by doing the other stuff that Paul's mentioned— Putting on one's helmet was one of the last actions, a a soldier, uh, before he was about to engage in battle. He'd slip on his helmet and then grab his sword. What Paul is saying is that we must constantly remind ourselves of our salvation. We need the assurance of our position with Christ. Because our position is one of the chief targets of the enemy. He is constantly trying to convince us that we don't really belong to Christ, that we aren't enough, that we aren't really saved. He wants to rob us of the hope of our salvation. The assurance of your salvation is one of the most strategic pieces of your armor, so receive it. And then in the face of his attacks, boldly stand assured of your position and future. He has no power to take anything from you. And then last but not least, the sword of the Spirit. The sword Paul is referring to here was the Roman short sword used in hand-to-hand combat. Its two-sided blade was razor sharp. As some scholars point out that the sword of the Spirit is the first and only offensive weapon that Paul lists. But that isn't strictly true. Uh, Ed Murphy, in his handbook for spiritual warfare, notes that a warrior who never attacks an enemy but only defends himself is a trapped warrior. And an army that only defends but never attacks is unfit for war. A church which does not reach out to war but only stands and defends itself is already defeated. He argues that when it comes to spiritual warfare, the best defense is to go on the offense— And while in Roman times the shield was defensive, two-thirds covered the soldier's body and one-third covered his fellow soldier to the left. The Roman wedge formation, when it linked the soldiers together, was for protection while the soldiers were on the offense. So rather than standing firm, meaning to just take up a defensive stance, There are scholars who believe that the idea has a sense of drawing up a military formation for combat. And in verse 13, it is the triumphant stance of the victor. As in together as the church, we struggle together against the advance of the enemy. Theologian Walter Wink suggests that Paul is depicting the church taking the fight to the enemy with the expectation that they will win. Wherever the balance may lie. There is no doubt that we will have to fight offensively at times, and the sword of the spirit is clearly an offensive weapon, and a sharp sword is crucial for close combat. Here, Paul is suggesting that the spirit is, is, he's not suggesting that the spirit is simply just supplying the sword to us. In fact, as we just saw with the helmet, we are to receive the sword as a gift from God. The sword is the Word of God, and the Spirit's role is to give it effectiveness to, effectiveness to its cutting edge. And when wielded as a sword of the Word in the way Paul demonstrates in Ephesians, it is not a sword of judgment, but the good news of salvation. As Paul put it in Ephesians 1.13, the word of truth, the gospel or good news of your salvation. Unlike a physical sword that continues to dull, the more you use it, God's word makes the sword of the Spirit sharper in our lives. As it says in Hebrews 4, it is living and powerful and able to cut to the very marrow of our bones. And while a physical sword wounds to hurt or kill, God's word, powered by the Holy Spirit, wounds to heal and give life. Paul's intent here is not simply uh, that we read and understand Scripture on our part, but we verbally use God's word to bring light into the darkness, to reveal sin, that salvation might be found, and to counter the lies of of hell, much like Jesus did at the end of his 40 days in the desert when Satan was tempting him. God's word in our heads and hearts, applied in and through our lives, spoken and shared as we live out the word, cuts through the darkness. And then finally, in verses 18 to 20, Paul adds one last element to the battle strategy. This is not a seventh piece of our armor, although in the original language, there is no period at the end of verse 17. But it is prayer that enables us to wear the armor and wield the sword. We cannot fight the battle in our own strength and power. Paul writes, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him, as I should. See, for Paul, prayer completes the presentation of our spiritual weaponry. It is an essential spiritual weapon, but it is much more than a weapon. It is foundational for the deployment of all the other weapons and pieces of armor. It is the key to effective warfare. Remember that we fight a spiritual battle in an unseen realm against unseen enemies that I know of. God has only given us two ways to fight in the unseen realm through prayer and through worship. So pray with our eyes open. That's what it means to stay alert. We see the phrase, watch and pray often in the Bible. So watch and pray. That way we are armed and ready when the enemy begins his shenanigans. Prayer is also a reminder that we come to the battle offering nothing of our own to wage war, but are reliant on God's power, his armor and his spirit bringing it all together. It is a reminder that we fight for his will Not our own. And much like we are all glued to our phones nowadays, connected to each other through the airwaves, we should always be in communion with the Lord. We pray without ceasing. So we never have to say, Lord, we come into your presence, because we're never not in his presence. We've never left it. And because we are in this together, we are praying for each other. We pray at all times with all kinds of prayers with perseverance for the saints. Paul ends this letter, as he always does, with greetings and encouragement from and for some of his indispensable partners in ministry and his friends. I will let you read them on your own. But before we sign off, I don't believe that Satan is behind everything that goes bad in our lives. We're pretty good at getting ourselves into jams without his help. Uh, Let's not give him more credit than he deserves. At the same time, we cannot, should not give him less credit than he deserves. We cannot be oblivious to the sneaky, destructive ways of the enemy. To deny that we have been thrust in the middle of the most epic battle of rebellion against God would be foolish. There's no question that the enemy is on the hunt to bring you down, to keep you from God if you have yet to surrender your life to him to keep you from becoming like Jesus, if you have. He will do everything in his power to neutralize the power of God working in you and through you. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is your takeaway. Pray through the army, through the armor of God in the context of you. Have you even put it on? How prepared are you for the next wave of Satan's attacks? If each piece of the armor is the full measure of some aspect of your identity that Paul has outlined in this powerful letter to the Ephesians and that we've talked about for the past seven weeks, work backwards to that part of your identity in Christ. Or maybe look for the cracks in your identity. So as you look at each piece of armor in your life, are there any chinks in the armor? If there are, if you find yourself lacking, work it backwards. If the belt of truth represents the truth of the gospel, are you living with integrity and complete alignment with that truth? If not, in what part of your life do you, and identity in Christ, do you need to walk a different way? What is God calling you to change about the way you are living? If the shoes of peace represent peace with God, peace with others, and peace within you, are you at Peace. Or has the enemy stolen your peace? Are you living in fear? How do you need to live to reactivate God's peace in your situation? If the flaming arrows of the enemy of guilt and shame are breaking through your breastplate, work it backwards. Have you been filling his quiver with the ammunition he needs to shoot those arrows at you? Quit living in such a way that you are arming the enemy. Listen, the battle is only going to become more fierce in the days to come. You have today to get ready for tomorrow. Don't put it off. Finally, in the words of our mentor, the Apostle Paul, verse 23, Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ surround you, be upon be upon all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. I messed that one up. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'd just like to take a moment. In each of our lives, where have you allowed the enemy to gain a foothold. None of us is perfect, so if if we can just be totally honest and transparent here, there's some place in your life that you've let your guard down. How long are you going to allow the enemy to do his thing in your life? Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to live like Jesus in every part of our lives that our armor may be full and strong and radiate from who we are in Jesus. It's likely in this room, watching online as well, that you've never put on the armor of God. You've never been justified through Jesus and received the salvation and the promise of of eternity uh, in your life at all because you've just been doing your own thing you've let sin rule your life I just want to encourage you today to say no more I want to live the way Jesus calls me to live and as always, any of our, our pastors, most of the people in this room would, be, would love to talk with you about how that needs to look in your life. It's really simple. At least the first step. It starts with, I give up, God. I can't do it on my own. And I believe that Jesus came to do it for me. And I surrender to his leading in my life every moment of every day for the rest of my life and into all of eternity. You have today to make that choice. You don't know what tomorrow brings. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does his perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus.